2014 Faith Forward podcast series. The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 Faith Forward gathering, which was held in Nashville, Tennessee. On May 19th through the 22nd of that year, hundreds of conversation partners from across the globe and spanning dozens of denominational traditions gathered to question, share, and be inspired to reimagine ministry with youth and children. This podcast episode features Brian McLaren's presentation at this gathering, which he titled, Framing a Conversation, Launching a Revolution. Uh, Before I get started, I feel I should uh, just acknowledge this really beautiful and fascinating space we're in. I've never been in a church of Egyptian motif before. (laughs) And I must tell you, I like the colors, and I'm attracted to anything that's creative and different. I don't know if I'm the only one. I can't help but think about a a church in the South using Egypt. (laughs) And especially if the church was built by white people. I get this sort of creepy feeling like, on what level was this conscious? Do you know what I'm saying? And and I think for the brothers and sisters in the room who are people of color, I would imagine you would really feel the same thing in a different way. And somehow that becomes a good uh, framing for what I'd like to say. Do do you feel what I'm saying there? I think the folks from the UK and Australia, you can sort of enter into this realization that in American history, especially if you're in the South, uh, you can't help but remember what Egypt means. And I, I think to myself, to be having conversations about theology in an Egypt-themed room has all kinds of importance for what we're going to say together. Um, So that's where I would like to go. So the the title for my talk is Framing a Conversation and Launching a Revolution. I mean, some people would say, look, people who work with Sunday school are the last people to launch revolutions. Uh, You know, it's sort of quaint and nice and quiet people and... uh, uh, you know, occasionally funny and cute, um, uh, you know, popsicle stick art and macaroni crafts. Uh, this does not seem like the kind of people that you would want to assemble to talk about uh, launching revolutions. Uh, but look, let's be honest. If you want to change the world, there's no better place to start than with children. Amen. How many of us know that a lot of the parents are some of the most change-resistant people in the world? The grandparents are even more open to change than the parents very often. Um, So it strikes me that if you want to launch a revolution, uh, you're exactly the people who uh, we should be working with. You know, I I might say that there's a kind of universal, unwritten Sunday school curriculum that goes like this. We want you to be a good child and churchgoer. To be a good Christian is to believe certain teachings. We, the church, are here to teach the correct interpretation of the Bible. Jesus told us how to be nice, be successful, and go to heaven. Some churches, the be successful is very optional. Uh, Because God is watching, you should be very careful and maybe afraid. We are sinners in need forgiveness. You love God by being a good child and churchgoer. Amen? Uh, and uh, I, I'm sure this could be finessed. And none of these things are really, well, maybe one of them isn't such a good thing. But, you know, they're not terrible things. Um, it's not like we're teaching children to be the Koch brothers or something. You know, it's, 
Uh, it's, it's not like we're raising future Exxon executives or anything like that. It, I mean, these, were, these are decent things, but I, I think we live in a time when we know that um, more is going on. Could we say it this way? We live in the structures of Egypt. And uh, we're not just trying to raise up good Egyptian citizens. Um, but we live in times when we're going to have to actually call people and raise a new generation of creative nonconformists, of people who dare to be different, who really do march to the beat of a very different drum, who live by a different rhythm and by a different vision. That's why I really agree with Otto Scharmer, who said this not about church, but said it about civilization, that what's missing today is high-quality discourse on rethinking the design and evolution of the entire system from scratch. And when he says the entire system, he means the entire system. That we live in a time when the systems that run the world are, are running the world right off the edge of a cliff whether you want to talk about the climate, whether you want to talk about the growing gap between rich and poor, whether you want to talk about media and political structures that earn votes and viewer share by creating fear and hostility toward the other. We live in a system that's run by greed and demagoguery, and it's not going to keep working for much longer. And uh, so we live in a time when we have to do some very deep rethinking. It's often described as a process of a, a kind of a downward uh, trend of saying what used to work isn't working so well. Uh, and, and reaching a kind of bottom where we say, as that beautiful song that Aaron led us in, there's so much that I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix this. The only thing I know is that what we're doing isn't working so well. And then a kind of rebirth and, and uh, resurrection and new growth where that rethinking and reimagining makes new things possible. Uh, for all of us in the faith, of course, this is the Paschal mystery of death, burial, and resurrection. I like how uh, some people have said it. It's a process of letting go and then a process of letting be, of just seeing the, the way things are. You know when you're trying to fix things, you don't see things very clearly. And when you reach this, those moments of complete inability and complete unknowing and complete incompetence, maybe something new can come. And then that openness and receptivity uh, of letting something new come can happen. So I'm just wondering what might be that unwritten curriculum that would produce new generations of the kinds of people this world desperately needs uh, it might say things like this, we want to help you become a lifelong follower of God in the way of Jesus. To be a Christian is to join Jesus in seeking justice for all, peace for all, joy for all. God is greater than anyone can explain or imagine. It might involve things like this, and I'd like to just delve into each of them a little more deeply. First, we want to help you become a lifelong follower of God in the way of Jesus. Now, I know that... Um, in many of our more progressive churches in the last generation, we felt that um, we would sort of de we, we felt that Christianity had become so exclusive and hostile to the other that we wanted to soft pedal and downplay our uniqueness. Um, 
I, I seriously considered that option, and I just, I don't think it's the way to go. Uh, I think if we want to be Christians, this is the time to rediscover the centrality of Jesus, not the old Jesus that was very useful in the Egypt economy, if I can say it that way. Um, but the, the Jesus who was there as a revolutionary in the economies and structures of oppression. To rediscover that Jesus and help people actually become disciples, not just Christians, but actual lifelong learners, which of course is what a disciple means. If you're a lifelong learner, then you have to anticipate stages that, that you're going to keep learning through your whole life. So one of the things we tell children is that you won't have this all figured out by the time you're 18. And one of the things we tell seminarians is that we're not giving you the theological system with which you should uh, uh, force people to comply for the rest of your life. But rather, we're in a lifelong journey, and this thing is going to look different as we go along. And we're preparing people from young ages for a life of discovery. Um, and that means that we'll encourage people, as Ivy said, to listen to the people who are farther along in the journey, to listen to their stories of faith, so that the, the telling of stories like Dave and Ivy just did beautifully will, will help set us up for that kind of life, of lifelong learning. Um, and um, uh, where we tell people, you know, listen, you might decide you don't want to be a disciple of Jesus. You might decide you would rather be a good American consumer. That's up to you. We'll still love you. And if you go try that for a few years and you want to come back, we'll welcome you back when you get sick of that destructive and suicidal lifestyle, which, you know, is, it's, it's up to you. But, uh, uh, you know, if we don't give people something that's so substantial they may not want to be in it. I don't think we've done our job. Uh, and um, uh, so, boy, then to, to bring things back around to saying, and we actually believe that the Word of God was not a book, but was a person who lived in a certain way. We want you to seriously consider becoming a lifelong follower of God in the way of Jesus. That would be a pretty substantial thing. Uh, then we might want to teach them to join, to be a Christian is to do, join Jesus in seeking justice for all, peace for all, and joy for all. Um, uh, uh, and that will involve training a new generation of contemplative activists or, or reflective practitioners, people who aren't just aren't just defined by what they think, but are defined by a, a life that they follow, a way of life that they practice. Following Jesus is imitating Jesus, being in this world the way he was in this world, so that we actually produce Christ-like people, not just when they're grown up. I mean, I really think this uh, I think we see this more than ever. You all have seen all the attention that's been paid to bullying in the last few years. And you just start to think, that tells us that kids are agents of mission in their class Monday. Kids are living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. They become agents of the kingdom of God for the kid who's getting bullied, for the kid who nobody likes, for the new kid who hasn't been accepted yet. And we're training those kids and forming the kids who are child disciples uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, and then what we start helping people think about God. 
I mean, so many of us, our understanding of God was formed in Sunday school, and we were given a nice little box for God. Wouldn't it have been far better if we would have taught kids, listen, we're going to give you a little box for God, but it's not big enough. God's bigger than that. And you'll get bigger and you'll get a bigger box for God. God's bigger than that. And you'll get older and you'll get a bigger box for God. And what we want to teach you to do is always trust the God who's outside your box, not the God who's inside your box. I mean, when you think about the challenge of this, especially as we deal with the Bible, we have to realize that the world of the Bible was such a different world, that three-layered, three-tiered universe. And then you think that the world that so much of Christian theology was formed in was Aristotle's world, the Ptolemaic world of concentric spheres with the earth in the center. And then you think that just 500 years ago or so, we, we did that universe in, and we came up with Sir Isaac Newton's very, very different universe. And we've partially just begun to adjust our view of God to Newton's universe, uh, some denominations more than others. And now we find ourselves moving into this new universe that's 100 years old now, and that a lot of us don't live in but that all of our children live in. All of our children. Well, actually, some of us find little religious bubbles to keep them isolated, but they're born into this new universe of of relativity and flexible space-time and so on. And I just think to myself, how do we help people learn about God in this universe, in this world, the creator of the universe that every kid learns he lives in Uh, or she lives in, through elementary school and middle school and high school. It shouldn't be that they inhabit one universe, a big, mysterious, majestic, multidimensional, evolving, changing universe, Monday through Saturday, and then they come back to somebody else's small little universe on Sunday. It just makes no sense. And that's part of our job of helping people have a bigger vision of God. But do you see it, brothers and sisters, then the Bible, we we can use the Bible to help people see that the Bible is actually the family scrapbook showing how our ideas of God have grown and changed through time. And we can help people then use the Bible not to be trapped into a universe of the past, but to see that our vision of God continually grows as our understanding of God's creation does. I know for some people that's very depressing. I mean, isn't it confusing that there are so many different understandings of God when only one can be right? (laughs) But then you think, isn't it wonderful that we live in a time when so many are developing fresh ways of imagining God? But it's not just that we go from closed to open. I also think we have something more to say. Isn't it amazing that Jesus opens up a beautiful window into God's heart? And so this whole understanding and vision of God, I think we're at a very exciting time to think about and talk about. Not only that, but I think we can say uh, that one of the things I hope that uh, in a revolutionary way we teach children is that Jesus gave us good news of a better way to be human individually and together. Not an escape plan uh, from this world, but rather a new way of being human. Remember, one of his favorite names for himself was Son of Man, which I would paraphrase a new generation of humanity, a new kind of human being. And that's what we are called to. And to be human in a world of violence, 
and, and, uh, that, that we live in. And to be human in a world uh, of environmental catastrophe and destruction and to be human in a world of economic and political corruption and injustice, what does it mean to be human? And for us to say, I mean, while people think that Sunday school is going on or that Christian education is going on, to say, no, we're actually part of this huge conspiracy to help create people who are experimenting with a new way to be human that will make a difference in today's world. To me, that's a pretty exciting thing, helping people envision what it means to live in the world as God dreams of it to be. That is revolutionary work, brothers and sisters. That is not training people to be drones in Egypt. That's training people to join Moses in a great liberating journey. Um, and then I think we have to teach people almost the opposite of what so much religious instruction has been about in the past. Trying to create a big ogre to be afraid of so that we'll keep you in line. But rather to say, you know what, God, I, I think it's great to say God loves kids. I think we have to tell people that God likes them too. Because the word love ends up getting so, uh, you know, but that you, you know, God likes you. You're you mean something to God, and that means uh, you don't have to be afraid. And, and, and there's a huge industry out there uh, of, of making people afraid of God. It's kind of a forgiveness racket, you know, a little bit like the mafia. Uh, we'll make you really afraid, and then we'll help you not be afraid for one more week. But then we'll make you afraid again, and then help you not be afraid. You know, it's so interesting how just in a year, uh, the new pope has modeled a different understanding of authority and, and, and really modeled a different understanding of God, not a fear-based image of God. Uh, it's really quite fascinating how people are ready if some people with authority will just start living it out and, and acting it out. And then I think we've got to teach kids about mistakes. You know, grace really, really is central to the gospel and, and help We've got to help people understand the art of failing wisely and well, the joy of being wrong, the joy of receiving and giving grace, and creating the sense that you receive grace and you give grace. Boy, to, to, to help from childhood for people to become not afraid of failure but, and not afraid of other people's failure. And Don't you think you have an important job? Uh, this really, really is significant. And then to help people understand that we love God by loving all creation with God. Um, and, and this is where we have huge theological work to do because an awful lot of us grew up with this kind of uh, storyline of God that really says that God's attitude toward creation is he can't wait to destroy it forever. Um, and it's, it's all over. And um, uh, unless you're one of the few and we're here in Sunday school, or we're here in children's ministry, or we're here in youth group to help you be one of the few. Um, it's a very different understanding uh, if we really are open to a radical shift in our understanding of the biblical narrative. Now, I know some people are making small changes. They're trying to maybe reduce that hell line, or some people are even trying to get rid of that hell line. But I, I'd like to suggest to you that what we're really dealing with is something far more profound than that. The way I've tried to describe it is that we're trying to reclaim not a storyline, but a story space, a three-dimensional story space, a story based on 
the Exodus story of liberation from Egypt and the Genesis story that helps us understand how creation is good and holy and how the Egypt world is, is an intrusion into God's good world. And, and, and the Isaiah story, the story of reconciliation in a peaceable kingdom, not just for one tribe of people, but for all people everywhere. And when we, when we enter into that story space, I think we enter into something uh, truly beautiful and good. In that story space, people who do children's ministry are going to have a chance to do something that a lot of adults haven't done yet. And that is how to learn to tell stories that are in argument with one another, in creative argument with one another. I, I, I remember speaking to some children's ministry people about this, and they, they, we were talking about David and how, you know, we all tell the stories of David and Goliath, but then say you shouldn't throw stones. <laughs> uh, and then... And when you really think about it, David is the story of a, of a child soldier. Tom Boomershine from the Network of Biblical Storytellers said to me once, he said, I'm coming to think that we shouldn't tell any single Bible story alone. We should never tell the story of David killing Goliath without telling the story of David not being able to, make, to build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed. We shouldn't tell the story of Noah and the ark where the ark is... God's destroying the world and, and uh, only a few are saved to tell the story without telling the story of the Pharaoh in Egypt where the Pharaoh is destroying people and God is, is saving people. He's involved in illegal rescues. Um, uh, we shouldn't tell the story of Pharaoh and the Egyptians as being the evil ones without also telling the story of Hagar being a slave to Abraham and Sarah, who's treated really badly by them. And then also telling the story of Solomon building the temple with slave labor, acting like a good pharaoh. We shouldn't tell the story of Joshua slaying the Canaanites unless we then tell the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman where he reverses that whole story. We shouldn't tell the story of Ezra saying, divorce all your foreign wives without telling the story of Ruth where Ruth is a noble woman and a foreign wife who actually becomes central to the lineage of King David and Jesus, we would add. We shouldn't tell the story of Jacob and Esau, especially the beginning of that story, where it sounds like God loves Jacob and hates Esau, without tracing the story all the way through to where Jacob finally sees the face of God in Esau. And then maybe we tell the story of the prodigal son, which I don't think Jesus could begin a story saying there once was a man with, who had two sons without also thinking of Adam who had two sons, one who killed the other, and Abraham who had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac who didn't do so well. And, and, uh, and, uh, and Isaac having sons, Jacob and Esau, and how does God act in the story of the parable of the prodigal son? God acts exactly like Esau, the disfavored son. Wow, that's going to be pretty exciting to tell the Bible story that way. And so we train children to join in loving the whole earth, all people everywhere. Um, I'll just in closing tell you, I, I got invited to be part of this really elite group. I, I, I 
I didn't know this group existed or I would have really felt bad to not be part of it, but there's a secret society of theologians who fly fish. Uh, and, and they've been meeting for over 20 years in Yellowstone Park for a week to fly fish and talk theology. Well, I love to fly fish, and I got invited into this group. Like, this for me was pretty cool. Uh, th th it's really corny. Um, they call themselves uh, ichthyology. I, it's really <laughs> corny. But, it's, but anyway, I, I've had a chance to be with them a couple of times. And they do this every year in Yellowstone. One of the great things about fly fishing is that trout live in really nice places. And, um, but they live in Yellowstone, where, uh, or they meet in Yellowstone, which is a landscape formed by fire. And when you're there, you realize how often fire spreads through different parts of the park and leaves it looking like a moonscape and destroyed. But then you realize how quickly from the ashes new life comes and you start to realize that the fire is actually not a destructive force, it's a recreative force. It, can you say it this way? Resources get siloed by the 1% of tall trees. And the fire comes through, and all those minerals are redistributed for the grasses and the flowers at the grass roots. And um, when you see how that works, it helps you realize that for a lot of people <laughs> who are filled with anxiety, feeling that the church is burning down and that everything's going to, to hell in a handbasket, you realize, no, actually, we could be at a time that our boxes are burning. <laughs> and we're better off without them. And we're at a time when new questions can be asked. As Vincent Donovan said, uh, that I, I won't read this whole quote, but he said, uh, at the dying of an age and the birth of one, religion will be in the forefront of those institutions clinging desperately to that immovable rock of unanalyzed assumptions. But, he said, revelation shatters that rock, disturbs our horizons, presents a God who is not like us at all, a destabilizing and surprising God who cannot be used to justify all our projects. Instead, one who asks us questions we do not want to hear. And that's the spirit in which we come together. Thank you. this podcast episode are reproduced by permission of the presenter and Faith Forward under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivations Copyright. The Faith Forward podcasts are produced by Dave Sinis. Stay tuned for more episodes of the 2014 Faith Forward podcast series on the web at faith-forward.net and join us in Chicago for the 2015 Faith Forward gathering April 20th through 23rd.